Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Easter Sunday, April 4th, 2021. All right, sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> it is right. Okay, well, well right. why wouldn't it be? I, I so happy Easter, happy spring. Yes. And uh, it's even a pretty nice day. It is. Uh, in the 60s. Hmm. So we had Easter brunch out on the veranda. Oh, yeah, that's right. We did. Very nice. Yes. Very nice. It was uh, delightful to be out in the fresh air and uh, still, uh, you know, enjoying daffodils. Right. And yeah. hyacinths. Things are only going to improve in that connection. and so forth. Right. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. We're into the spring. We're into the spring. And speaking of spring, there was a movie called It Happens Every Spring. And what was that movie about? It was about baseball, Tamsin, as you may recall. <laughs> Ray Milland, who invented a, a, a pitch that would curve in a way no other pitch could. But let's not get into that. The, the fact of the matter is, the baseball season began on April 1, just a few days ago. It was not April Fool's. This is the real thing. Every team is playing except for two. And one of those is the New York Mets, because they were going to play the Washington Capitals. And Washington, that team, um, had a COVID uh, issue. Okay. Right? But uh, nobody wanted to play in that weather anyway. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. No one wanted to play. The poor Phillies had to play. Yes, but they won their first game. And, uh, you know, look, the question is, what's it going to be like? Um, uh, by the way, I said Washington Capitals, Washington Nationals. Um, what, what, <laughs> it's, it's been a heck of a long time for a full baseball season. Yeah, and, and the Times, this, this was amazing in and of itself. The Times wrote one of those articles that used to be... Derrigor every spring, in which they wrote a couple paragraphs about each major league team and made their picks for the postseason. What's strange is the Times doesn't write about sports anymore. And when I, you know, I have a call with a, uh, a bunch buddies. of folks about my age uh, every week, and I mention an article in the Times about sports, and they all said the same thing. The Times? It was in the Times sports section? <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, you, you look carefully because you feel it must be very important for the Times to include sports articles in the, in the sports section. Uh, in any event, the Times, as you know, if you want to put your money down, uh, sees the playoffs in the National League side uh, be, being between in the final round, the Atlanta Braves and the Dodgers, with the Dodgers prevailing, and in the American League between the Yankees and, believe it or not, the Chicago White Sox, with the White Sox prevailing, and they see the World Series going to the Dodgers. Uh, they have the Mets down as a wild card. I think that's about right. I can see the Mets as a wild card. And uh, that would be good. I'd be happy if they if that worked out. Uh, you know, the thing that gets debated every year, all year now that we're back in baseball, is how come young people are not interested in baseball? How can the games take too long? How can we make it more interesting? And Granger had directed me to uh, a, a site for a minor league team called the Savannah Bananas, who have their own rules to make the game more interesting. Uh, yes, you told me about those. Those are crazy rules. Well, the key one being that if you hit a, a foul ball into the stands and a fan catches it, the player is out. What if it's not a fan? What if it's a fan from the opposite team? I shouldn't have said fan. Anyone catches it in the okay. stands, you're out. But All it would right. only be a fan of the opposite team. So, look, that's not going to happen. But they also had a rule that the batter can't leave the uh, batter's box. Uh, that would speed up the game quite a bit. They have to speed up the game. And yet there are a lot of people who say these days, there's nothing you can do to make young people interested in baseball. It's just not a, a a game that's attuned to the present day. There's too much fast twitch. There's too much on your phone. 
uh, not enough patience, perhaps. You can put it in a positive or a negative way. Oh, really? But baseball. So it's not, the people. It's the well, they're just not the right the game. They're not, not the right people for baseball. Or baseball's not the right game. Honey, all you baseball lovers gave birth. <laughs> To this generation that doesn't like baseball. Well, you know, okay, I I could go on. You can't believe the theories people have about this. They're blaming it on the way these kids were brought up. They said the, the parents were on the phone and they didn't spend enough time playing catch with the kids. There are all kinds of theories for this. But baseball is spiraling downwards in terms of young people being interested in the game. It's not my problem. I don't own a team at this point. So I'm I know okay some with older that. people who aren't interested in the game. Well, not my point. My point is younger people, are they interested in the game? There are plenty of older people. There may be some, you know, systemic issues with baseball. Yeah. You know. It's slow. That make it not that interesting as opposed to the behavioral uh, considerations. But here's something something that bucks the trend, though. Okay. We're saying that the next generation doesn't appreciate baseball like the early generations do. But that's not true when it comes to players. If I asked you which sport... In which sport or the there players more... like baseball? No, here's let me be more precise. If I said to you, in which sport are there more sons of players who are major league level who also make it to the major leagues? Is that in basketball? Is that in football? Is that in baseball? The answer would be baseball. Baseball I, is the one yeah. where you see more players' children. Really? And the question is because why? Because it is seems that? like there are an awful lot of fathers in the stands at basketball games. You can have fathers. The question is, are they major league players? No, it, but it seems like they're, they're pointing out this guy who is right. a big player at this there, club. Look, there are some, but I can give okay. you the numbers, and, and the answer is it's baseball. And the uh, You know why? Why? Because these guys have a career that gives you time to have a catch with your son. Uh, you see, now that is one theory. And so they asked uh, Barry Bonds, who's perhaps the greatest baseball ever by some views, whose father was a famous player, Bobby Bonds. And they said, is that why you became so good at baseball? And he said, my father never had a catch with me. When these guys play during the season, they're on the road all the time. You never see your father. So there's different views on that. Okay. okay? The, the theory is, is there are two things that come to the fore. One is, unlike a lot of sports where it's largely just innate uh, athletic ability that shows up in baseball, baseball is a matter of training and insight and mental preparation, and mental approach. And you do gain a lot, or potentially gain a lot, by having a father who is a professional in that sport because he helps you with the mental side, and the mental side is so big in baseball. Uh, that's one theory. The other theory... But if he didn't have time to have a catch with well, the kid, he catches up with how him. does he have time to give his mental insights? Later in the season, and when the season's over. you know, At time, at time, he sees it. The other thing is, uh, well, there are two, three theories. Number two is that the baseball organizations are very receptive to having the young kids around. They're always in the locker room and in the clubhouse. So they do get a sense and exposure to baseball in the way that uh, you don't see kids in the locker rooms of basketball or football teams. And number three is, it's very simple. They say that young children, they, they put a fancy name on it. Um, it has to do with mirror neurons uh that children mirror what they see in terms of the parents in the way they move uh and the way they handle things athletically including they give the example of uh phil mickelson lefty as he's known him for you've seen phil mickelson play golf again and again yeah well it turns out that phil mickelson grew up 
watching his father hit golf ball after golf ball. Well, what's interesting about this is uh, Phil Mickelson's not left-handed, but his father was. And because he watched his father hit left-handed golf, in a left-handed way hit those golf balls all the time, when he went to play golf, he played left-handed, and he had a big career that way. So if you watch someone do it again and again, you pick it up. They said it doesn't work unless it's in person. If you have your father there, that could work. Whatever is going on, you see, and you're going to see a lot more in terms of sons of major league players. They're still figuring out the way Mike Rathwell was quoted in this article, who's the CEO of Driveline Baseball, uh, who's it's an organization that's involved in baseball science. As he puts it, we really don't know the answer. We're still in the bottom of the first inning on this one. So... We'll figure it out. Right. Well, I do think it's interesting, but mm-hmm. I, it's clear that they haven't figured out the answer. No, because you're, you're giving right. me examples from golf. <laughs> you're right about you, that. You know, and um, yeah. you know, why aren't the golfers? Uh, well, you know probably what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, it is an interesting point because I don't think there are any golfers' kids on the tour that I can think yeah. of. Also. So it's I understand confusing. the mirroring, but uh, I don't know. It, it would necessitate, I think, kind of playing ball with your dad well look, and you just told me that doesn't happen well that was just Barry, Barry Bonds who knows he was uh, he might be a, an individual case okay it sounds like it's time for a museum update yes. ding 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 go ding right. yeah we're really gonna have to go to some museums I don't know why we're sitting around the house all the time I can't imagine oh I know why we didn't get the second dose yet. It's happening we soon. We get the second dose. And the museum's open. The sky's the limit. Yes, let's, let's take it easy with the sky. Um, there'll, be, there'll be limits. Okay? But yes. Anyway, museum update. But there's another interesting show. You know, a week or two ago, we talked about Alexander Calder. Big show at MoMA. Yeah. Museum of Modern Art. It's going to be there for a while, so we could go. Yeah. Uh, I do love sculpture, and I do love the Calder family. Um... And now there's a big review of a um, exhibition of the paintings of Alice Neal at uh, the Metropolitan Museum. Alice Neal, N-E-E-L. Uh, she was a 20th century painter. Um, and, you know, of people, really. I mean, you know, some uh, landscapes and scenes, etc. But you, you see few still lives, but uh, she's really uh, prominent for her approach to painting people, portraits and just, uh, you know, people being people. Okay. In fact, title of the exhibition is People Come First. Oh, okay. And uh, so she has an interesting style that, uh, you know, you can see how it might relate mm-hmm. to the more abstract um uh, uh, sort of influences going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and yet uh, she really brings, she seems to bring personalities uh, alive in a very real way, despite uh, distortions, etc. Somehow her distortions make the people, the objects, even more real to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I have another um, 20th century um, painter that whose portraits I like and they you know are somewhat abstracted as well. Haim uh, Soutine, 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's how you say it. Chaim. It, he he was Russian, okay. but uh, he emigrates. Chaim. What? Chaim. Or, Chaim. Yeah. Okay. Um, he emigrates to uh, Paris. Mm-hmm. He's you know a generation ahead of Alice Neal, but that uh, same kind of abstracted uh, sort of approach to capturing uh, uh, appearance and personality. Um, Alfred Barnes was a fan of Soutine. A lot of people are a little anti-Soutine because they did a whole series of animal uh, carcasses that really grossed people out. Really? Yeah. That didn't appeal to people? No. no. It still doesn't, you know. <laughs> it still doesn't? <laughs> you know? It hasn't really uh, risen in the public's uh, Yeah, when I mentioned Soutine to people who know, they go, oh, gross. Oh. And in fact, uh, I read some funny thing recently where... Um, he got in trouble for having uh, people called the police because of the stench of the carcasses in right. his studio. Yeah. And uh, there, there's a, an urban legend that Mark Chagall uh, came by, saw the blood, and thought he was dead. Oh, really? The Soutines killed himself. There's blood everywhere. If I needed someone to check uh, out a crime scene. But anyway, uh, an, an interesting little list, side yeah. story that goes with this exhibition is the exhibition includes... Uh, a um, painting of two uh, young African-American kids, men, boys, and called the Black Boys. And uh, there's a story in the Times about uh, the boys who posed oh, really? for this painting. Yeah. And they had never seen the painting. Oh, really? And, oh, I think uh, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So th- they had a, an older friend. It's yeah. um, kind of a... Um, you know, uh, what would you call it? Sort of a big brother, surrogate older brother, who they would hang out with and yeah. go places with and do things. And his name was Alan Tobias. Huh. And uh, he actually became friendly with Alice Neal. Yeah. And he ends up taking Jeff and Toby Neal, no relation, N-E-A-L, yeah. uh, over to sit right. uh, for her. And they do. They're not wild about it because yeah. they're young boys. Right. And uh, it's boring. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, Alan uh, Tobias buys them a, a good lunch and they appreciate that. And uh, they never saw the painting. And it kind of disappears right. uh, when it's done. Uh, she never, she doesn't sell it for a long, long time. I think it's in the 70s to a woman who is actually doing a feature yeah. on her for a magazine. Sees it and says, you know, I'd like to have that. And uh, she buys it, and uh, you know she has it till um, she dies. But there's no record of the sale. Mm-hmm. You know, you can imagine it's just in the studio. You know, hey, can I buy that from you, kind of thing. And um, so it just kind of disappears. People know about it. Uh, Tobias asks about it, and uh, finally it resurfaces after being sold after the death of uh, the owner, uh, and uh, resurfaces in another exhibition. Uh, Tobias finds out about it, and uh, he lets uh, the one brother uh, had passed away, but uh, the other brother was still living, and they all get to go see it. It's uh, kind of a a full circle thing over many, many years. So anyway, uh, it looks like a terrific, accessible um, exhibition. It'll be on until August 1, so I think we should go. And this is where again? The Metropolitan Museum. They have more stuff at that museum. All right. Fine. Good.
So there was an article uh, this week in the Times about the, the musical Follies because it's the 50th bunch of articles, a bunch of articles, a bunch of articles. Right. Yes, so the 50th anniversary of Follies by mm-hmm. Stephen Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. never my favorite musical. Really? Right. I think I made uh, Zeke go with you to see one yeah. revival yeah. because I was not interested. Uh-huh. I did go through an anti-Sondheim phase. And you've emerged from that. I've emerged from that. I'm okay. very pro-Sondheim. Good to hear that, yes. You know, I don't know what was wrong with me. But a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people don't like Follies. Uh, people like the songs. Ah, I think you've really hit on it. But I, I don't want to interrupt you. Perhaps you were No, no, no. I don't, have, I, don't, I don't have... Well, here's what's interesting to me about the, the Times. They do talk about it. It's a little bit confusing. It, it was, it's not that it's not a valuable discussion. I guess both Jesse Green and Ben Brantley are writing about it. Certainly Ben Brantley. And, um, uh, and, and I think it's a little bit unclear. Um, so maybe I can bring a little clarity to it. Yeah, it opened 50 years ago. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it was not a success. Not initially. It was just the opposite. Uh, and in fact... Uh, Do you want to tell what it is about? Not everybody knows. Well, I don't know if it's what it is about is as important as the time seems to think it is. Uh, what it is about, generally, what, what the setting is, there are... Uh, it's women, a reunion. It's a reunion of people who are... a bunch of, involved. like, Ziegfeld Folly-type women. Right. Well, and, and, and they're... The, the they're, theater is about to be um, torn down. Boyfriends, yes. Yeah. And, and they were Ziegfeld Follies performers... Uh, and all the performers get together at the theater. Many years later. Because af- many years after their Many years A-day. after the fact. So they're no longer uh, young, uh, you know, starlets, but instead they've reached middle age or perhaps even beyond. And the fact is that the theater itself is going to be turned down and turned into a parking lot. That's the way the stage is set at the beginning. Uh, instead of uh, Mr. Ziegfeld, the producer's name is Mr. Weissman. And uh, he explains all at the very beginning. But it becomes a memory play. And it goes back and forth in time between the people getting together at the reunion, including their husbands and boyfriends, who were contemporaneous with what was going on years ago. Everyone knows everybody. And there were people dated, you know, they all know each other. And there's history with all of them. So they're living in the present day. They're living through their memories. So they're sort of like flashbacks? Flashbacks, flashbacks. And songs that are flashbacks. And younger versions of the present-day characters who actually perform in some of the flashbacks. Okay. So it's back and forth and back and forth. It had a lot of older performers That's right. in it. That's right. It did. Which is kind of amazing. Uh, it was interesting. And and uh, and as I said, it was it started in London, then it was quickly to Broadway, and uh, it was unsuccessful. It closed after a year, and uh, according to an article I found, uh, they lost, the investors lost the entire $800,000 investment. It was an expensive show to put on. It was on. a very lavish show. Very lavish They said show. it would cost $30 million to put on right. in the same, at the same level. So the question today. is, and it's a little bit like, you know, Merrily We Roll Along, it, which was a failure at, at the outset. Um, so the question is, what happens to it? And the real thing that happened to it, and I think the article doesn't really cover this the way it should, was they put together... Uh, a concert version of Follies in 1985 at Lincoln Center at Avery Fisher Hall. And they put together an all-star cast, including uh, Andre Gregory from A Dinner with Andre, who plays Weissman, the producer, uh, Mandy Batankin, who everybody's going to know from Homeland, uh, Lilia Montevecchi, Elaine Stritch, uh, Phyllis Newman, Carol Burnett, Betty Comden, Adolph Green, 
tremendous cast of performers and first and foremost, Barbara Cook. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Barbara Cook, and I know you know this, is Barbara Cook was the ingenue superstar on Broadway in the 50s and maybe even the early 60s. And at a certain point, she disappeared from the scene. And the reason was she had personal issues. By her own words, she was became a terrible alcoholic and non-functional, frankly. And then in the late 70s, uh, she got together with Wally Harper as an accompanist, and they put together a cabaret act. And she gained some traction that way. She even had a nice concert in Carnegie Hall. But this became her return, in a sense, to the Broadway stage. And the concert version of Follies, uh, which was, again, at Lincoln Center with the New York Philharmonic performing, was fantastic. And it was received uh, in the same way. I, I happen to, by coincidence, have been reading uh, Frank Rich's review of this recently. Here's the quote. Friday's performance made the case that this Broadway musical, like other initial commercial failures like Porgy and Bess and Candide, can take its place among our musical theater's very finest achievements. It was fantastic. And um, and Barbara Cook was fantastic. Can I just say? Yes. That's not the first time Frank Rich reviewed Follies. Uh, probably wasn't. The His original review. Yeah. For the original production. Was? Was for the Harvard Crimson. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> but he probably liked it. He didn't like it that much. Oh, did, is that right? No, no. Um, That's interesting. There's, there's an interesting uh, discussion I can't find it right now. Well, it's interesting you said that because I know that Steve Sondheim reached out to Frank Rich when he was at Harvard based mm-hmm. on his review. So it couldn't have been too terrible a review, mm-hmm. honestly. But but they do say in that Times article there were at least two reviews, including the review for the New York Times when it originally opened, that were not positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, that's not inconsistent with what he's saying here. What Frank Rich is saying in 1985 is, I'm watching this, and this is great. Mm-hmm. And so there are a couple reasons... Uh, that Rich goes into, and, and I actually agree with. Um, one is, well, what Rich does say, which is true, is that the music's fantastic. And and again, um, not every Broadway show, uh, its music doesn't stand up to a full uh, symphony orchestra performance. It doesn't have that, that kind of depth. Right. Uh, and Rich makes a big point that this one does, does. perhaps above all others. And he... He cites West Side Story. Says, "Yeah, West Side Story is almost as good." Mm-hmm. So that's that's a tremendous endorsement. Um, and the other thing though was what you said at the very beginning, when you said something about the music versus the story. Yeah. And the concert version was the music. Right. And the way Sondheim writes, and we've discussed this before, every song's a little playlet. Mm-hmm. It kind of stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And maybe what was always weak in in Follies was the book. That put it all together. Not that it was terrible, mm-hmm. but that it lost momentum, it lost steam. And when you did the Follies concert performance, which I'll t- tell you, you can easily get. There was a very big selling DVD on it, and you can certainly get the, the CD or stream it. And you should. Uh, because I'll tell you right now, well, let me come back to that. It probably helped that they took the dialogue out. They have very little dialogue yeah. in the concert performance. Okay. Uh, and, and to me, I mean, I heard you say at the beginning, you know, not your favorite. And I don't know where you ended up landing on it. But if you ask me just in terms of, um, you know, you always talk about original cast recordings, and this would not be an original cast recording, but it's a recording of a show. To me, it might be the best 
show recording I've ever heard, honestly. Uh, certainly right up there with, you know, all the greats you want to talk about, South Pacific or whatever. But uh, it's fantastic. So in any event, uh, I did find that a pretty interesting article. Um, I should mention, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, at Classic Stage, the organization that uh, I'm involved with to some degree, is doing a, uh, what, how should we describe it, a benefit streaming event on April 15th. If you go to Classic Stage Company, go to their uh, site, you'll see it because they're about to stage Assassins, God knows when, let's say in a few months. Benefit streaming of what? Uh, it's a documentary hour-long piece that John Doyle has put together in which he interviews the past cast of Assassins, the present cast of Assassins. There's singing of some of the numbers in Assassins. And I've seen part of it, and it's very, very good. Uh, so that clearly, I think, is, is worth So that's we'll Classic Stage Company? Classic Stage Company, April 15th. And uh, uh, I think it's worth checking out. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, back to follies. Oh, sure. I yeah. thought we were done. Go ahead. No, I didn't get to say anything. Go ahead. Um, Knock yourself out. What were you going to so, say? No, it's just there were a couple of funny stories, I yeah. thought. I like the story about, so there are a lot of uh, older stars right. in the original production. Yeah. And one of them is, um, uh, what's her name? Yvonne DiCarlo. Oh, I remember Yvonne DiCarlo. Okay. Uh, who may be known to most of us as Lily Munster. Munster. And the Munster family. Yeah, right. sure. Okay. I, I, that's how I remember her. Um, but uh, anyway, she was in the production. Right. She was like the big name right. in the production. And uh, they had a, she needs a big song. She has nothing really going on. Right. And whatever song uh, she was... Um, was doing it, it wasn't working right. so um Sondheim has to come up with a new showstopper's song that's what she's there for yeah and uh, it ends up being uh, i'm still here yeah and i'm still here is a big number now it's what do you think number. about and I'm it's still just here. it's funny that you know that uh it didn't exist you know you know what i mean the nuts and bolts of staging a musical you know, it's not like it was a fluid part of the original vision for this uh, show. It was like, we got to do this. All right, here it is. Boom. Yeah. Well, I'm Still Here is a real gut punch, show-stopping, everything in number. And frankly, I like it, but you got to be in the mood for it, right? It's not always what you want to hear when you put on the car or when you're driving on Old Country Road. But uh, but it's a great number. And, of right. course, it was performed in the concert version by uh, Carol Burnett. Yeah. So, I mean, and some other things. Then there was an article by uh, Ben Brantley. Yeah. Who, for him, it's the first musical he sees on Broadway. Well, that's an odd choice. And uh, he and his uh, parents are just kind of stymied. <laughs> you know? And, again, they... They, you know, he likes the music. It took him a while to come around uh, to, well, the nuances of the music. It's not just about looking back, yeah. et cetera, which... Uh, music and the words. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also that um, the way that Sondheim uses different songs, uses the styles of various uh, um, composers from the past... To evoke well, I found that very the different characters. I, I, I hear this once in a while, I remember to forget it. And they make the particular point that, you know, and they give you the, the particular numbers. 
that mm -hmm. uh, this song is based on Irving Berlin, this song is it's based on Harold Gershwin, Norlin, this yeah. song is based on George Gershwin. And when you read that, you say, uh, okay, uh, I see that. And then I think they also say in the article that was amazing about the show was in each case, it was based on one of these composers, but it was better. The song is better. It's better than Gershwin. It's better than Romberg. It's, it's, and and that's that's tough sledding. It's better than Harold Orland. Yeah. It's better than... But I would never pick all that up. As much as I love yeah. those but, other guys, well, but, I, I'm not cool enough but to when you, really hear that. No, but when you no. hear the operetta stuff, you, whether you know Romberg or not, no, you, yeah, you, you can oh, recognize yeah, the style. Yeah. And the torch that's song... old school. Right. The torch song style is a torch song style. I mean, right. and... But, uh, and of course, did I mention, uh, I guess I did mention Mandy Patinkin. I mean, um, there's some amazing performances in it. But the joke's on me. Because? You know, I, I, I used to not like Sondheim because it was too new. Uh, it's 50 years old. I don't think it's 50 years old. I don't think that's why old. I didn't like it. I don't, yeah. you want, can I give you a theory why I didn't like it? Why? Because I grew up in Maryland? Because it's a little dark. And uh, as my life got darker, no, I'm just saying it resonated. No, it's just that it's. I think a lot of people's first reaction when they hear Sondheim is they said, you know, it's a little dark, and then you hear it again and again, and you're drawn into it. I think it's that simple. That's my theory. Well, and along with that is, yes, yeah, it's very good music. It's unbelievably good. All music. right, that's why you revisit it and you revisit oh, it, yeah. and it works better and better. Right. Okay. Um, if you just have a your random simple right. show tune, right? You know, then after a while that gets cloying. You right. say, "Oh no!" And you that's know, why the the concert version with the New York Philharmonic it really registers. You just you're just blown away because right. there's that much music. Um, okay, uh, so I want to say something because I know people look to us for. You know, for insights, the news, insights into events like the uh, yeah. In case anyone canal, didn't notice, there was stuff. a big boat, a big boat, the ever stuck in the, the Suez, Suez canal. canal. But here's what I thought was interesting about this: they had all kinds of ideas about how to free it up, and yeah, there's a very cute picture of a little teeny backhoe trying right, to dig, trying it, to dig out. it out. Yeah. You know, which uh, the Times actually described as David versus Goliath, which made me wonder about whether anyone knew that story. But put that aside. My point is that uh, it was hopeless. And what say this? Sticking with a biblical um, a mood here, the answer is Passover of safety. And so why, why is that the case? Because Passover, as you were the first one to explain to me, is based on the appearance of uh, a full moon. It's, right. it's a lunar harvest calendar. Holiday, lunar well, calendar I was explaining moon. Easter, but... Well, and, well, Easter is almost like Passover, but not quite the real thing. And, 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 and the fact of the matter is, well, in, in this sense, It's the same moon. It, it's the same moon, but I think Passover is on the full moon and Easter is not. Unbelievable moon. Did yes, you see right, that moon? Right, right. That was a great moon. Easter is a little late, but in any event. Here's I got up early one morning. Yeah. Well, it was still full. Yeah. And it was a pink and blue sky right. because we were expecting rain. Mm -hmm. And this hazy mist mm. was around this enormous full moon well, well, with a slight pink color. You know where they saw it too? Amazing. They saw it in the Suez Canal. And here's why it helped them. Because when there's a full moon, and I can get into this in detail, but I won't, uh, there's a greater range in the tides, which means that low tide is lower and high tide is higher. And what does a high tide do? It lifts all boats. And that's how <laughs> the Ever Given 
got out. I'm not See? making this up. This is All actually right. what happened. It was Passover. It was high tide, full moon, and that's uh, that's it. That's so you're really saying the God of Abraham stepped in here? Uh, uh, acting through the tides. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not going to take it too far. And uh, we can get into, is that what the parting of the Red Sea is about or not? There are theories about that. I don't want to run down that rabbit hole right now. But you really could see it play out in connection with the Suez Canal. So there you have it. I just want to make that point. Well, as long as we're in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, there was a big parade in yeah. Cairo recently. Right. Okay. Cairo, downtown Cairo, came to a near standstill yeah. uh, Saturday night as 22 mummies were moved from a museum where they've been for over 100 years to a brand new museum, mm-hmm. okay, called the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. So obviously, in a ploy to get some publicity, they made this, rather than a simple transport, a parade. They closed off the streets. They hung banners up uh, uh, to hide unattractive alleys. Okay. They streamed this. And they said, if you want to see this parade, you can watch it on on, your, on computer. your computer, right. including Egyptians. Right. Nobody was allowed to come to, front, to the street right. and watch the parade. Right. You had to watch it on the you know, um, computer screen. Just the idea of it is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Mummies but, but, on parade. Yeah. yeah. You know, usually you read about, uh, you know, pharaohs and mummies uh, doing something. Right. Uh, and it's usually obscure guys you've never heard of. This included some superstars, okay? Yeah. Hot Shep Soot, everyone's favorite uh, first uh, female pharaoh. Yeah, sure. okay, absolutely. And Ramses the second. Ramses Ramses was perhaps the most powerful. Uh, he he ruled for sixty six. Years, okay. He's not involved in the Passover. He had over two hundred wives and concubines. Mm. He had at least a hundred children, around fifty boys and fifty girls. Wow, actually, uh, which is how it works Mm. if you have that many. I think. Um, And uh, so, I mean, these were these were the biggies. So uh, that must have been quite a parade. But I don't know, you know, it would be more fun to see in person, I think. I don't know. What can you see inside? the? probably just had a bunch of SUVs. Right. Who knows what was in those? There's probably (laughs) nothing in those cars. (laughs) I I want the Egyptians sorted out. I would not be surprised. All right. Okay. Um, And then uh, from the obituaries in the New York Times, I noticed that Joan Walsh England Mm -hmm. passed away. She was 95. And she wrote a book you even you may have heard of, although it's not a book that would be up your alley, called A Friend is Someone Who Likes You. No. Sorry. Okay. Well, um, I, you know, I can show you the uh, pictures from the book. Does that character ring a bell? Yeah, it looks kind of familiar. Um, because she wrote this book. Uh, she, uh, she was married. Her family um, moved to... Uh, New York City from the Midwest uh-huh. and she was incredibly lonely. Uh-huh. She jotted down some notes yeah. about it. Her husband found them later and said, you know, I think we could make this into a book. Okay. And uh, um, 
ends up being published in 1958, sold more than 4 million copies, was named New York Times one of the 10 best illustrated books of the year. Really? She goes on to write like 120 books. Her The figures themselves become sort of, you know, pop culture um, icons. Right. You know, they're on, you know, on every possible tchotchkes and little dolls. I think I have one of those little dolls. Okay. Actually, I don't know uh, who gave it to me. Um, the book... That book and uh, others of hers were translated into a gazillion languages. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have that book in the Latin version because, of course, at some point I was a young girl studying Latin. Uh, anyway, uh, she was uh, she lived to be ninety five. Mm-hmm. Her and her figures. The the children have little eyes and big faces and no mouths or. Did she illustrate? Um, what? Was she the illustrator? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. And the, so the figures, are, she left them sort of blank. Uh, mm-hmm. She said uh, she realized that unformed, untouched faces better evoked the innocence of childhood. Okay. Yeah. So she, and she had a, a little bit of a tough life. When she was very young, uh, a sister died mm-hmm. uh, of meningitis at age three, spinal mm-hmm. meningitis. Her dad and her grandfather were killed in car accidents Mm -hmm. uh, at a certain point. The family left Chicago, goes down to Florida, and just takes a breather Mm -hmm. and lives there for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, she feels pretty strongly that this kind of saved their lives Mm -hmm. in many ways. And then they went back to Chicago. So um, she said the books were very simplistic Mm -hmm. and... uh, I can't say that um, they're very simplistic. When I first started writing them, she said there were no books about children's, there were no children's books about emotions. It was all C. Dick Run. This is 1958 when she's writing. I wrote simply in part because my son was dyslexic and I wanted him to enjoy my books. I also wanted people to get the essence of what I was saying. To give everyone the joy of, I read a book. Huh? It's not Herodotus. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. But I read a book. All right. So, um, all right. So finally, uh, Howard Schnellenberger died. Um, and uh, Howard Schnellenberger had a great career as a football coach, uh, both at the college and the pro level. Uh, uh and I was really thinking about Howard Schnellenberger in part because we were watching that basketball game last night, the NCAA basketball game, the semifinal. Yes, UCLA and Gonzaga. And Gonzaga. And uh, Gonzaga, before the game, had been discussed, and maybe will continue to be discussed, as not only the best team in the nation, but the greatest basketball team at the college level of all time. There were a number of articles about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they play UCLA, who's what's called an 11th seed, who's, who's not really that highly touted. And that game is back and forth, back and forth, and could have easily been won by UCLA. And it was won on this great miracle shot by Gonzaga to end the first overtime. Great, great basketball game. Already described as instant classic, greatest basketball game of all time. Uh, and the team that was favored survives. Well, that reminded me of Schnellenberger. Because uh, he coached in the greatest collegiate football game of all time, or at least then was pretty clearly regarded as the greatest football game of all time at the college level. And he was the coach of the underdog team. Nebraska was the favorite. 
and this is 1984, and Nebraska was, quote, the greatest college team of all time in people's thoughts. And why were they the greatest college team of all time? Not only were they undefeated, but uh, they averaged, get this, 50 points a game. Mm-hmm. They scored 50 points every game. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and they were considered totally unbeatable. So they're playing in the postseason in uh, the Orange Bowl in Florida. Who's playing? Nebraska. And they're playing University of Miami. And that's a team coached by Schnellenberger. Miami, you know, Florida's football crazy, but the two schools that were football leaders there were not Miami. They were Florida State and University of Florida. And Miami was sort of a latecomer to the party and had a good season that season. Uh, they were number five in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had lost to Florida. They had a good quarterback, Bernie Kosar. You remember that name. Yeah. But they were overwhelming underdogs in this game against, against perhaps the greatest team ever. And uh, Snellenberg was just a great coach. And Miami jumped out in front by two touchdowns. Uh, then uh, the score was 17-14 at the half. Nebraska tied it up, 17-17. But Miami got a second win. And in the third quarter, and early fourth, scored another two touchdowns. So Miami's up by two touchdowns with seven minutes to go. Nebraska scores. Now they're down by seven. Miami misses a field goal. Nebraska gets the ball with a minute 47 to go. Down by seven. Marches down the field. Time is running out. Fourth and eight on the 24-yard line. They, they do a pitch out to their running back. Guy breaks a tackle. Goes all the way for a touchdown. <gasps> right, and like the last play of regulation, they kick the extra point. It's a tie game, and do they go to overtime? And here's what happened: there was no overtime in college football. Then, so then the question goes to the coach of uh, Nebraska: What do they do, Tom Osborne? Do they kick the extra point? In which case, clearly they're going to be number one because they'll remain undefeated, mm-hmm. and so a tie is for them maintains that but does that make them the greatest team of all time they get tied because you have to go for the win and he says i'm a football coach as he's interviewed later i'm here to win mm-hmm. and he says i have to go for two and he goes for two they go back to pass the pass is knocked down they don't make it miami wins the game in the greatest upset at that time and uh nebraska no longer the greatest team ever miami ends the season as number one so uh a lot of parallels with what we saw last night the result mm-hmm. was a little bit different mm-hmm. uh i don't know i'd like to think uh this game we saw last night will be remembered for as long as the miami game was remembered uh that one's 35 years ago 36 years ago so we'll great see story. great right. story uh and uh that's it so let's everybody enjoy the rest of your easter as will we Yes, we will. And uh, we'll see you next week, uh, God willing, following our second shot. Uh, at Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Is it Dan Abuhoff? And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. Here we Once go. again. Once again. Next week. Bye-bye. Adios.